Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. From Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. For better or for worse, the franchise film provides much of the lifeblood for theatrical horror releases. But reboots, sequels, prequels, and reimaginings are a tricky business. You want to give the people what they want, what they liked about the original that encouraged them to come see the follow-up, but you want to give them something more, something a little bit different, to give them the satisfaction of a new movie-going experience. It really is a fine tightrope to walk. It's rare to come out and create a franchise. They happen organically. If you set out to create one, chances are it will tank. The successful horror franchises came from individual self-contained movies, films that did not look into the commercial future of their deadly spawn. But when the original film is a hit, particularly in the hands of a major studio, at least one sequel is pretty much guaranteed. Halloween, Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, Hellraiser, The Purge, Scream, all of them were created without intending to build a commercial empire. I've worked on several projects with numbers in the title, The Fly 2, Critters 2, Psycho 4, and the Freddy's Nightmares series, and have walked that tightrope many times with varying success. But there's something special about Halloween. In 1982, producers John Carpenter and Deborah Hill wanted to do something completely different with their property. They wanted to do something completely different every year, a Halloween story that jettisoned Laurie Strode, Michael Myers, and Dr. Loomis. It would have been an annual spook show with Halloween as the umbrella title and theme, but an original tale every time out. Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, was the first and last Halloween movie to try it. And the dissatisfaction among the fans led to a disappointing box office and a return to Haddonfield from then on, and a cult resurgence in years to come. It's a fascinating story and one we're going to learn all about from its writer-director, Tommy Lee Wallace, after this. Are you a horror screenwriter looking for your big break? Screencraft can help you get there. This year, ScreenCraft's Horror Screenwriting Competition brings horror heavyweights to its jury, including writer-director showrunner Mike Flanagan of the hit Netflix shows Midnight Mass, The Haunting of Hill House, and The Haunting of Bly Manor. Dubbed the industry's number one horror screenplay contest by IndieWire, the ScreenCraft Horror Competition has a long history of creating success for its winners and finalists, many of whom have gone on to sign at places like Bellevue Productions, Kaplan Perone, 
affirmative entertainment, zero gravity, and more. Winners will be accepted into the ScreenCraft Development Program and receive personal introductions and phone calls with top Hollywood literary managers who are looking for talented, emerging film and TV screenwriters. So whether you're writing a contained, socially relevant horror movie or a big horror TV series, ScreenCraft's jury wants to read your script. Head over to screencraft.org horror to enter your feature screenplay or TV pilot. Act fast. The competition closes on Halloween, October 31st. Where's Mike Myers? It was the outcry that sank an entire movie. When Halloween 3 hit the theaters, it had all the promise of a smash hit. Talent, dedication, gripping story, and two predecessors in a budding anthology that broke the box office to smithereens. There was only one problem. In this movie, everyone's favorite murderer was nowhere to be found. The backlash was swift and brutal. Halloween 3, once so promising, slunk in and out of theaters, leaving behind a trail of outraged fans and a team of bewildered filmmakers asking themselves, what happened? Acclaimed horror director Tommy Lee Wallace has a few answers. In his debut book, Halloween 3, Where the Hell is Michael Myers, Wallace offers a beautiful, poignant, often hilarious in-depth account of how H3 came to be revisiting the triumphs and pitfalls of being a first-time director and the heartache in watching it all fall down, only to be rocked 40 years later by the discovery that the dedicated fandom for his box office flop has been there all along. But of course, what's horror without a twist ending? With a foreword by Tom Atkins, your very own Dan Chalice, never-before-seen set photos and inspirational artwork from you, the fans, Halloween 3, Where the Hell is Michael Myers, is a talisman for both horror fans and folks who love a damn fine story. This book is for the ones who always knew. So, Tommy, welcome aboard. Thank you. Tell me. Tell me, this is a very unusual sequel in that it did decide to just jump in. But you were offered Halloween 2 first, were you not? Yes, I was briefly on board as the director of Halloween 2. The conflict came uh, when John turned in the script. Um, I was all over the original Halloween. You could say the third part of that team, if I may be so bold as to presume that. Oh, yeah, you had a number of roles on that, <laughs> not, not just including Michael Myers in the scene in the closet. I, and other scenes as well. Uh-huh. But, uh, but uh, you know, I took a great deal of pride in that movie, and I thought it was the classiest horror movie we ever. We knew we'd done a scary film. Of course, we had no idea it would turn into the phenomenon that it did but uh, somehow the the script when John did it he did a kind of on the fly under pressure I'm talking about Halloween 2 and uh, he and I didn't spend a lot of time talking about it I I briefly advocated for a five years later type of sequel Mm -hmm. I thought there was a, a lot of content to be worked with around the idea that Laurie Strode has been traumatized beyond PTSD and 
is trying to live her life and goes off to some very secure small college somewhere with great trepidation. And of course, any maximum security kind of situation can turn equally into a prison. And there you have basically the plot of H2O. Uh, right, right. Well, I was kind of advocating for that, but John felt uh, his instincts told him to do a five minutes later type sequel. And anybody who's worked with John understands that his instincts are very good. So yeah. I respected that. And of course, it turned out to be a, a great success at the box office. But I, I couldn't hide the fact that when John turned in the script, I just hated it. I hated yeah. it. Uh, yeah. It felt like the anti-Halloween because of all the gore. And of course, he was up against the fact that H2 was not an immediate sequel. Several, two, at least two years went by before we, uh, H2 came out. And in that time, there'd been a sort of arms race of violence and gore in horror movies. And so I think he simply felt like in order to compete, compete in the marketplace that he needed to do that. Anyway, uh, drawing out a very long story, the uh, end of that part of this story is that I just said, really, I can't. I can't direct this in all good conscience because I think in, it would have been a false note to begin my own directing career on. I know I could have done a good job, but it would have been, I'd, I'd have been faking it. And John and Deborah deserved a director who was really gung-ho and loved the script and wanted to give it his best. So I withdrew and I felt horrible about it and felt like also it was like, okay, is this career suicide? Here's an opportunity to direct on a silver platter and I'm walking to away. do your first feature and for a major studio because yeah. the original Halloween was a small indie compass international production yeah. became the most successful independent film of all time, highest grossing. And then here's your opportunity. Oh yeah. It was that. on a platter and I just, I, I knew it was the wrong move for me. Uh, so I withdrew, but, um, Deborah then called me the next year. Uh, I think they had Joe Dante on board briefly. Uh -huh. and, uh, he went on to something else and that opened the door to someone else. And uh, I was pleasantly surprised when I uh, was invited on board to do this. My first reaction when Deborah called, her words were something like, how do you feel about directing Halloween 3? Well, after... Halloween 2, I figured, okay, it's just going to be mega gore and just stupidity. And so I started to say, no, thanks. But she hastened to add, it's all new. It's all going to be different. <laughs> no shape, no uh, uh, babysitters, no big knife. Starting over from scratch with a whole new idea. And I went, count me in. You know, I was delighted. And it's also a, a tribute to our friendship and lasting respect uh not only deborah and me but john and me as well uh, we go back a long way yeah you're both from bowling green kentucky did you come out together to no john john came first i helped him blaze that trail because he was looking for a he, he had known since childhood that he wanted to be a film director which was going to involve film school uh and so I knew about this book in the library on the campus 
of the college in our town where you could go and look. It was called the Blue Book, I think, and uh, a list of colleges all over the country. And we looked at NYU and uh, Miami and USC. And uh, he chose USC. And I think it probably enjoys the deepest and longest reputation as film schools go, except maybe for London film school. But uh, so I, I helped him make up his mind and uh, off he went. And we continued to correspond while I went off to art school in Ohio. Uh, and the picture he painted of the scene, West Coast scene, you know, dear Tommy, I was out on Sunset Boulevard and walked past the whiskey and the doors were playing inside. And it's like, <laughs> oh my God, this just sounds like Eden, you know? And so I was pretty attracted uh, toward the West Coast. Uh, so when I graduated, I had a portfolio full of graphic design kind of stuff. Uh, and uh, it was either gonna be New York or Los Angeles. Uh, and because John was already there, I, I went out with a couple of friends, spring break, a borrowed car, and just went to uh, an interview in the film department and the uh, animation guy was interested in my portfolio. So I got accepted. Uh, in, in effect, John had one foot out the door as I was entering the front door. And uh, uh -huh. so he and Dan O'Bannon were already uh, plotting to expand their student film, Dark Star, right. into a feature. And uh, so I helped them out with that. Uh, you were a production designer on that, right? Well, no, that, uh, that honor went to Dan. I was, oh, okay. his, I was kind of his right-hand man. I was the first guy who showed up who could really uh, do a professional job on signage, for example, and right. all, all the myriad tasks that pop up in the art department. And he trusted me. And so we got along very well. Painting the beach ball. <laughs> Actually, Dan painted the beach ball. Ah, okay. He, Dan was a madman. He was a, a, just a, a brilliant guy, full of ideas. And he and John made a formidable team. And, uh, but Dan was not easy to work with. So the fact that he liked me and we fit together allowed him to designate and uh, delegate many tasks, you know, building the elevator shaft, for example, or creating that zany xylophone-like instrument that uh, Brian Norell plays in one scene. Uh, he was able to just say, hey, go do that, and knew he could trust me to pull something uh, passable off. Uh, so it was a, a fun learning time. USC is a marvelous school, and I learned a lot there, as have a lot of other folks. But uh, being having a movie, you're participating in an actual movie is a bigger education by far to just be there doing stuff and, and picking up information as you go and oh drop that and go help Doug Knapp do a lighting you know you just soaking up information and, and skills and uh, techniques all oh, along the way that's it was a great education that's wonderful. Yeah, I, I never got the opportunity to do film school and always wished I'd had, but, you know, we, we enter through different portals. Yes, indeed. 
So uh, I know your early career was deeply intertwined with John's, um, but, uh, and we'll get back to that, but as far as Halloween three goes, how did it begin? I know Nigel Neal, who wrote the Quatermass movies, uh, was involved uh, and had written a draft or two uh, early on because John was such a huge fan of the Quatermass films. How did that transpose or metamorphose into (laughs) what became Season of the Witch? Well, I suppose we should start with the elevator pitch, which I believe was Deborah's uh, for Halloween 3 when they decided they'd had enough of the shape, they'd had enough of the big knife and the babysitters. And so if they were gonna be on board, and this train was leaving the station one way or another, they insisted it was gonna have to be a departure of some sort. And Deborah came up, I believe it was Deborah's brainchild, how about uh, witchcraft meets the computer age? And that's a pretty good pitch. Uh, And I believe that's what she handed off to Nigel, who was uh, a much respected writer in uh, science fiction and horror and many other uh, genres as well. Uh, And so, yes, indeed, Nigel, by the time I came on board, Joe Dante, also a Nigel Neal fan, had come and gone. And uh, Nigel turned in the script. I think his marching orders were just, hey, do something with that theme. And uh, although they had shown him Halloween 1 and Halloween 2, and uh, reportedly he didn't think much of either movie, uh, he went away and uh, came back with a script that it had, it had much to offer. And people asked me many times what, uh, how much of Nigel was left in the script by the time you finished the movie. And I have to say at least 50 or 60% of the, of the finished film wow. is Nigel's characters, his plot. Uh, the fact that he took his name off of it is a, a long conversation. Uh, I think I've spoken with his biographer, a man named Andy Murray. Mm-hmm. And Andy, uh, we, we went back and forth about this because uh, for several years there, I had operated under the misconception that Nigel had quit on us in effect. Uh, he turned in a script, uh, unbeknownst to me at that point, it was like his second or third draft. I thought it was his his first draft and typically after a first draft as you well know you're going to be in for notes and there are several people going to weigh in and you're going to have to fight certain battles and win some and lose some and keep on writing so I thought that was what we were looking at and then he just said no I'm uh his his statements later indicated that he thought these young punks were about to desecrate his masterpiece or uh, words to that effect. Right. Uh, so I wasn't very kind to him uh, through interviews. Uh, we never had words about it at all. But uh, when he withdrew abruptly, it dropped into my lap and John's lap to do something with a script that, although it was very interesting and strange, and uh, the central idea which survives was really scary and, and quite terrifying. 
not a particularly original idea that there is an evil force out to destroy the world. That wasn't the original part, but the original mm -hmm. part was, okay, it's Halloween time and masks and the target is the children. Oh my God. The, yeah. Those are things that were all Nigel and they were in there. Uh, I suppose to, to clarify what then was wrong, uh, Nigel is and was an acknowledged master of a certain type of presentation. You could say that the original script was perfect for one of the original Rod Serling Twilight Zone episodes uh. or, or, or British television of the 50s, uh, a, a psychodrama. Right. It focused a great deal on a kind of Freudian story involving uh, young Ellie, the uh, damsel, let's say, and her father, uh, a sort of tangled story about uh, uh, an abusive father, a bird that was given to her as a gift when she was a child, and she let the bird go and her father beat her and so there's this tortured narrative that goes down through Nigel's script about all of that, which sets up his climax in which Ellie has been reduced to the mentality of a child, presumably through uh, mind control or something. Well, that uh, sounds like a good time at the movies, right? <laughs> well, you know, it was disturbing and it was well-written, uh, it was though as if Nigel had never seen a contemporary American horror flick roller coaster movie designed for young people. Right. Yeah, that was part of the gap that that we were having to grapple with. It was just as if he'd he'd been in a museum somewhere for a long time. Mm. Okay, so I I think that uh, John took a pass. And John has, uh, John's a musician after all, first and foremost. And as uh, you are as well. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and so John first added pace and all the tricks of suspense and, and an immediacy that uh, he's well known for. And then I rewrote him. He may have been a little surprised at that, but I rewrote him. <laughs> uh, and he respected that too. John was a great producer. You can imagine that that situation could be intimidating for a director, especially a first time director. But yeah. John, uh, John stayed clear of the production pretty much. He was there in support if I needed to consult. But, uh, but you are the one credited with the screenplay. Well, by, I, uh, John never added his name it's he's probably rewritten every script he's ever shot right. on, on his own pictures without putting his name on them so it was not surprising to me that he would just slip me the script and didn't expect any credit for it uh or blame whichever you wish <laughs> to apply but uh yeah that was how i wound up with the most inaccurate credit ever given to anyone uh it, uh, it's good for residuals. <laughs> well, that's true. But you know, 
it, it should have, if I'd been thinking clearly at the time, I would have put an Alan Smithy kind of credit on it. You're familiar with that term? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's when uh, you traditionally uh, first started with directors and then writers started using it to indicate, okay, if you see Alan Smithy in the title, that means somebody took their name off. Uh, you know, exactly. somebody was dissatisfied or they felt their work was desecrated in some way. That would have been a more accurate way of going about it. Or although you were the writer and director, and uh, yeah, own I it. It, own it. it, I well, you know, that's exactly what John said when I started writing the book this year. That'll be released uh, October thirty first. Uh, he said, "Own your movie. You know, reclaim, yeah. reclaim your movie." Especially now that people love it so much. I mean, I've had projects that did not do well in their early days and have ended up being really close and near and dear to the hearts of the fans. This feels, is uh, one of those. Feels good, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, I, I'll tell you, Mick, the redemption for Halloween 3 has been very sweet. Uh, it hurt badly when it uh, was perceived as a failure. And I say perceived because I looked back at the figures. It didn't do that badly. It, wow. Uh, it, uh, well, its first uh, time out, it was about 16 million as compared to uh, Halloween 2, which made about 20 something million in its opening wow. uh, barrage. So it was not a failure at all. It was just the expectations were through the roof. Right. And the fundamental mistake, uh, really a, a sort of two part mistake that we all made. and. I place blame all the way across the board from <clears throat> the executives at Universal, the marketing team, advertising, all those folks, plus the producers and myself. It was like, what were we thinking putting a Roman numeral three on a movie that was supposed to be the kickoff of an anthology? Right. We could have simply called it Halloween, Season of the Witch, and a big ad campaign that said, okay, fans, something totally different this year. I even, for my book, I wrote a mock ad and as if ad for the movie's release that might've helped, you know, because- yeah, an all new story for Halloween yeah, from but, the makers of blah, blah, blah. Exactly. And <laughs> as it was, the, the poster, which is a beautiful piece of artwork, all it, all it said that might've enlightened people, laugh, laugh, was a little banner way in the corner, tiny type that said, all new. Yeah. That <laughs> yeah, well. So, uh, it was a, a horrendous mistake, but clearly uh, 40 years later, it's especially the last 10 years, it's just remarkable, the fan base for this movie. It's really gratifying. and uh, Yeah, happy 40th anniversary. I mean, it, I had that... You know, as a writer of Hocus Pocus, that movie did not do well when it came out, and yeah. it is, it is ubiquitous and you sweet, know. sweet uh, redemption. Uh, it is, it is indeed. Yeah. Well, tell me about the process. You'd gone through film school, and what USC in particular does well is train you in every department. It does. You'll it, operate camera. You'll do sound. You'll do editing. In fact, you you co-edited Halloween and the Fog. Um, yeah. Uh, and but here you're directing a script that you're credited with having written <laughs> for Universal Pictures. 
Well, Universal actually stayed uh, in the shadows. Uh, I think there were some union issues that caused them to want to not be prominently uh, featured. So, so it was they, a pickup by them officially. They sort of shadow produced it. Uh, you know, they they backed it along with Dino De Laurentiis. Uh, right. There were a lot of names involved: uh, Mustafa Akkad and Irwin Yablons and others. From the uh, original, yeah, exactly. Uh, everybody was getting there two cents in uh, is <laughs> it the inflation or the arms race in that world my god anymore we look at the producer credits on these movies and it's like there's 20 of them yeah it's it's absurd and and they're really only two or three at most who got in the nuts and bolts and really produced the movie right it, it's a it's a kind of a catch-all credit which dilutes it a great deal i I'm happy to say the director's credit has a little, a little more <laughs> credibility. Usually there's only one uh, or two at the most, you know. Well, did you feel free to fulfill your vision for the movie? Did you have, uh, because the studio wasn't really in charge, they were picking it up. Uh, you had John and Deborah on your team and they were a couple of 800 pound gorillas. It was bliss. Mick, uh, it, it was absolute bliss. A, a first-time director could not ask for a better situation. I was, I came up through the John Carpenter school, and <clears throat> I must confess, I took it for granted to some degree, something that's actually quite a phenomenon. John clawed his way into uh, control of his movies basically by offering situations where they could not refuse because he did it on the cheap and his only conditions were, okay, but my name goes above the title and I have final cut. Well, that's a brilliant strategy and it served him well, but he sacrificed a lot to get there. Yeah. Well, so Dark Star, Assault on Precinct 13, Halloween, The Fog. I was accustomed to a place where the final say about what we were going to do was right there next to me in the room. Uh, it was just turned to the director and whatever he says, we're not going to have a lot of politicking and a lot of suits standing around behind us, second guessing. Man, I had no idea what a luxury <laughs> that was until yeah. later when I directed several other things. And it was like, what? I'm getting all this flack from behind the scenes from somebody who doesn't know how to direct a movie. And yet they think they, have the right to tell me what to do. It was not an easy road. But to get back to your question, uh, John was not much present on the movie shoot itself. And Deborah brilliantly produced it, but did not interfere with my world much at all. She weighed in very constantly on casting and well, she might, because she really was a brilliant casting person. She had well, a, a wonderful person and a wonderful producer. Yeah, yeah. yeah rest her soul. Uh, she left us way too early. Yeah. But uh, she was brilliantly supportive of me. It just spoiled me rotten for later. But <laughs> uh, And John had his hands full with the aftermath of the thing. And right. I think he also, to credit him, I think he very wisely... Uh, stayed a, a pretty good step away from 
the situation until uh, he was needed at the end when uh, the studio saw our finished film and we even screened it uh, in Las Vegas for a test screening. Las Vegas, you wonder, but it turns out that was a typical demographic sampling of, of the audience we needed. It was a great place because when I was doing publicity on The Howling, we did a test screening of The Howling there that went through the roof. Yeah, they apparently when you got away from the strip and all the gambling and stuff, that was like a cross section of the USA. Yeah. Uh, very typical. But anyway, uh, I got a call from John shortly thereafter before the release, and he said, they're not happy with the ending. Uh, and I gulped and I thought, <laughs> oh, shit, here we go. It's uh, now John, you know, I had absolute maximum respect for him as well as gratitude because I was there uh, at his behest and at Deborah's behest. So I was prepared for him to say, we've got to change the ending. And uh, okay, what are we going to do? None of that happened. John said, what do you want to do? In other words, he gave me final cut on this movie. Pretty amazing. First time out. I, I knew it was a gift at the time, but after 40 years, now I know how big of a gift that was. Yeah. But uh, it didn't take me but only a second to say, let's leave it the way it is. And Mick, that's a, uh, looking back on it, it was it was a double a double whammy in a way because uh, I, not only did I believe it was the right ending for that movie, but it was also one for Don Siegel and the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Uh -huh. I'm sure you're aware of that movie and sure. the, fact, the fact that it's uh, has a bookend structure. Yes, it, it begins in an emergency room and. Poor old Kevin McCarthy's staggering. He's at, oh, out of his mind raving about they're going to take over the world and blah, blah, blah. And then we fade back to tell the whole story of the movie. And then at the end, we flash forward back into that emergency room. And, oh, a phone call goes through. And, oh, it's going to be okay. They're, oh, oh, we're off the hook. And I hated that bookend structure. It just yeah. instinctively... Well, it was added. It wasn't part That's... of the original production. Exactly. That's what I discovered later. It was, yeah, of course you hate it because it wasn't the right thing. Yeah. So in a way, when John asked me what I wanted to do, some part of my answer was a blow for Don Siegel, <laughs> studio <laughs> interference over movies in general. Yeah. And uh, I'm to this day, I'm very proud of that ending and the way it ends. It's a horror movie. It's supposed to be scary <laughs> and dark. Yeah. And dark. Now, now, I love the casting and Dan O'Hurley. He is amazing in it. Thank you. But also the commercial, that's you. That is You're me. doing the voices and the even the uh, chipmunk eyes voices there. It's true. I, I, uh, uh, Deborah told me, well, we've got to have a jingle and uh, we have no money. So you better either make something up or find something in public domain you can use and uh, come up with a jingle. So, okay. Uh, I contacted Alan Howarth, who was collaborating with John on that 
soundtrack as well as others before and after. <clears throat> and uh, said, let's do a session. And uh, I went over and first and foremost was the left hand of the synthesizer. Boom, 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 boom. And that came straight from childhood piano lessons. Uh -huh. Everybody who's taken those lessons will remember one called the spinning song. And it goes, and the left hand is going, that was the beginning of it. And uh, London Bridge, no question, that was in the public domain. So I thought, okay, that'll do. And made up the tune to go with it. Uh, London Bridge is falling down, falling down, falling down. London Bridge is falling down. What's the last line? I don't even know. Da, 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 da. We know now, Silver <laughs> Shamrock. Silver Shamrock. <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah, I added, I uh, harmonized with myself several times. I guess there are three or four voices or more on there. Chipmunk style, like David Seville, record yeah. slow, play back fast. Uh, and there you had it. I didn't realize at the time that it was, uh, I knew it was the right, uh, kind of the right feel because it, it rests in that place between if you're an adult watching this movie, you know, those little creatures singing that song are not nice people. They're little <laughs> demented elves in a padded cell somewhere and they mean you no good, you only evil. However, in the story, it, it kind of works that the children could have been fooled by that. It sounds, it's right in that little niche. And uh, so I, I felt really fine about that. <laughs> and just this year, uh, Trick or Treat Studio called up. They are marketing a pumpkin that plays that thing. Oh, how great. That's their one of their latest releases. That's speaking, great. God, speaking of which, Oh, may I show you a couple of items? Sure. Wrapping paper? Anyone? Oh, nice. Look at that. Believe that? All the masks. Yeah. Unbelievable. The, the, uh... And the hat you're wearing. Oh, yes, of course. I forgot. <laughs> yeah. Nobody I... else can see it but us, but what the heck. Yeah. And it, it, the, it just goes on and on, little buttons. and The whole deal. It, oh, and then we can get to uh, fan art. Oh, wait, here's... That's a beautiful, beautiful T-shirt. Simple. Gets right to the point. It's great. Fan. Oh, well, let's see. First, we'll dispense with the trick-or-treat line. Here's oh, nice sign that says final processing. Restricted area for silver yeah. shamrock. Why do you think, um, why do you think that its popularity has turned around? That, well, that it's been so embraced in the last decade or so? I think there are probably two reasons. First of all, it never deserved to be slandered the way it was because it's a pretty decent movie. Uh, to some, say the least. Some, yeah. Well, gosh, here's a fan that said, look at this. Here's a t-shirt a fan laid on me. Uh, one of the you know cons that I go to. Mm-hmm. And oh, nice. what you can see on it, it says, I wrote and directed the greatest horror film of all time. <laughs> and all I got was this lousy t-shirt. <laughs> the fan just came up with this. The fan art is awesome. It just goes on 
and on and on. This just uh, last week, somebody. It's almost time, kids. <laughs> and it just doesn't stop. Welcome to Santa Mira. Yeah, it, I mean, it's the genre fans are the most passionate and the most embracing of all. It's and so sweet. The, the first time I went to a, a show, uh, my buddy Sean Clark, we made it oh, yeah. years ago, and he interviewed me and he said, you ought to do one of these shows. And I thought, hey, hey I don't know, just people with tattoos and piercings and like they look like psycho <laughs> killers. I don't think so. And he said, no, no, you, you need to do this. And so I did one and the people were so sweet and so supportive. I had kind of internalized the sense of uh, failure that was laid on the original movie. And boy, you talk about getting kind of back on the horse uh, in it psychologically. It was like, oh, maybe it was a pretty decent movie. And people go, yeah, it was a great movie. God, blah, 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 blah. It's yeah. like, that was uh, good medicine for me. Well, it, it really is good to meet the fans because, uh, like I said, in this genre, they're incredibly generous and encouraging and enthusiastic. And we try and share that uh, on, on the show here. Here's one more piece of fan art. A little stand for Linda. Oh, a beautiful pumpkin-headed uh, figure of a kid with the mask. Yeah. Nobody. And uh, one more piece of merch from, uh, I believe this is Trick or Treat also. This is the only one I've ever just wanted. And so they sent it to me. A Ouija Ooh, board. A Ouija board from Can Halloween. Believe that? That's great. Unbelievable. Beautiful stuff. Well, we've both been involved in sequels and the like. And, and, uh, and that, my, that. Half my career, like you, uh, half yeah. my career. That tightrope that I talked about in the opening, I mean, you wrote Amityville 2, you directed Fright Night Part 2, um, you did Vampires Los Muertos. Tell me about how you feel about that tightrope, about what a sequel is meant to be. Yeah, I, I don't know anybody who deals in this world who doesn't have certain mixed feelings about it. Uh, I. I suspect down in your heart somewhere you share this sense that I have had, which is, okay, on the one hand, this is marvelous. I can't wait to get started. I can somehow carry on this tradition, Fright Night being a good example. I loved that movie and thought, oh, what fun. I can carry on that idea. On the other hand, uh, sequels, I from the beginning as they started, as sequelitis started to take over the world, uh, <laughs> I, I, I had mixed feelings about it. I, there's a negative connotation with them as being, okay, a cheap knockoff of the original, go through the same steps and uh, just repeat a bunch of tropes and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, mixed feelings, uh, no doubt about that. But uh, also, I think that it's incumbent on any director or writer who takes one on that they better not take it if it's just for the money, if it's just to feed the kids. You really better hold back if, unless you can embrace it and get excited about it. Yeah, it, making a movie is so difficult. It's your whole life for six months or a year. 
And if you can't be passionate about it, if you can't love it and instill it with everything that's in your heart, then pass. Don't, don't do it. It'll, it'll tear you up. It's true. Or it'll turn you into sort of a zombie. Uh, Yeah. There are plenty of people out there who just jumped in without a sense of direction or a sense of uh, why am I doing this? Yeah. Oh, I want to do it because I want to have my face on the cover of something and uh, I want to get money. That's really not a good enough reason. Uh, no, even to go into the business, people who who want to become a screenwriter or a filmmaker because they'll be rich and famous, boy, have a big waking up to do. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, and what's the song uh, and all the stars that never were are yeah. parking cars and pumping gas Dion warwick yep yeah man it's <laughs> it's the truth uh, the the southern california is littered with those folks um, yeah. everywhere you look and a lot of them went back home and found yeah. something better to do <laughs> yeah uh, so of the sequels that you uh, you've done what were the ones that you were able to get the most excited about? And I'll mention a couple that you didn't. I actually did a reboot of Flipper. I know, the TV series. The TV series did a couple of episodes, uh, the pilot episode, and I think one or two other ones. Uh, that was fun. Uh, My wife's grandfather was in the original Flipper movie in Florida. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and what was the other one? Oh, Born Free. I did a... a reboot of born free yeah uh, for television for television another one of those uh, forays honestly as sequels go true sequels where you're actually echoing whatever came before as opposed to halloween 3 right i'm proudest i think of uh, fright night part 2 yeah uh, people most people haven't even seen it because it had a it was like star crossed uh, its release was marred by a double murder. Yeah, I don't know if you know this story. No, uh, please. You've heard of the Menendez brothers. Sure. Uh, Kyle and Lyle or something like that. Lyle and somebody. Anyway, yeah. the Menendez brothers murdered their parents, shotgun murdered their parents, uh, Beverly Hills. Uh, well, as it happened, their father, Jose Menendez, was the distribution uh, captain of Fright Night Part Two? Oh. And he was shotgun to death several oh days before God. it was supposed to be released. It just devastated the whole momentum of the movie in every way. So uh, those guys murdered my movie as well as their parents. Yikes! <laughs> yeah, it's a, wow. it's a terrible story. Uh, but it's a beautiful movie, and uh, I'm very proud of it. And the people who have seen it, most of them really feel it's a good, legitimate companion piece to the original. Sure. I have nothing but respect for that original. It's a, a great Tom Holland yeah. classic movie. Just a beautiful job, uh, Chris Sarandon and all the rest. Yeah, the cast really, is great, and Roddy really McDowell. Yeah. It was a pleasure to have... Uh, to work with Billy Ragsdale and Roddy McDowell. They were just uh, wonderful. Uh, So I'd say that's my favorite. Well, you and I both took a hard right turn into television for years (laughs) in our careers too. Yours yours very, very varied. Some of it TV movies, miniseries, some of it um, 
the series. I mean, you did Max Headroom, the original Max Headroom, with oh, one of my favorite human beings. That um, was a that was a joy and a pleasure. Matt Frewer, yeah. And Matt, I got to work with Matt again on uh, a story called Far From Home, which oh, the sure. very young uh, uh, Drew Barrymore was yeah. in as well. Uh, yeah, Matt's a pleasure. He's, he's I've worked with Matt more guy. than any other actor. Yeah, have you? Isn't yeah. he a great guy? He's just just the greatest. But uh, you also did the '80s reboot of The Twilight Zone. That's right. That's right. Another sequel, uh, technically, you could technically, say. yeah. So, <laughs> would you say you're particularly drawn to this genre, or that's kind of where you ended up? I was not highly motivated the way John was. John yeah. was laser focused on getting where he wanted to go as a film director. Uh, he placed no value on his writing, although I think he's a very good writer. Sure. Uh, but he would write just to achieve uh, something. I remember astonishment. My, during my first year out there, I would go up. Uh, John had an apartment in Hollywood with uh, two other fellow USC people. They were just getting out and heading off into the industry to try to make their way. And uh, one Friday, John had a conversation with someone who said they had a connection to money, but they needed a script and uh, blah, 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 this and that and the other. And he says, oh, I've got the perfect script. I'll, uh, I'll see you on Monday. Well, he didn't have any script. <laughs> he went home. And I was up there at their apartment that weekend and I watched him sequester himself and write an entire screenplay uh, that weekend. And it should have been crap. It should have been utter dreck. It was called Hillbillies from Hell. <laughs> and it was really fun and interesting and not bad at all as the screenplay goes. And he showed up with it on Monday. And that was when I knew, my God, this man is motivated. He's got um, what it takes. Yeah, I can't, uh, I, I can't pretend to have been that highly motivated in my own career. I think I bounced around from opportunity to opportunity as it popped up. I was very naive to think that, oh, I got a lot of talent, so this, this whole thing is gonna find me. And it's like, it wasn't until later I realized, wait a minute, everybody out here has got a lot of talent, Everybody out here is looking to, to score in some way. Uh, so you, you may not, they may not find you, you know? Uh, yeah, you, may have, yeah. you may have to try a little harder. Uh, but so, I, was always, I was always more laid back and sort of hippified about the whole thing. Yes, Kentucky hippie, yeah. Yeah, pretty much, by way so, of Ohio. Like, yeah, so did you, uh, were you attracted to the horror genre in particular? Or was that um, John's influence or? That was John's influence. Uh, not to say I didn't have my favorites, but they were, let's see, two double features stick in my mind. Uh, and John will appreciate that uh, I saw them. I saw one at the Capitol Theater and one at the State Theater, which were the two prominent theaters on our town square. Right, I've actually been there. <laughs> so, you know. Yeah. It, uh, the science fiction double feature that knocked me over was 12 to the moon 
and Battle in Outer Space. Wow. And the horror double feature that blew me away was The Killer Shrews and The, <laughs> giant, the giant Gila Monster. Uh -huh. so these are, you know, to look at them now, they're almost jokes. They're, they're <clears throat> really of their time. I remember being a child and in the back of our station wagon at the drive-in and seeing the trailer to the Killer Shrews and dying to see it and knowing I'd never get. <laughs> it was. I dogs mean, in shrew suits. Dogs in shrew suits, exactly. It was <laughs> ridiculous. But man, you know, you're sitting in there in theater getting all worked up and the music playing and everything. That was when I started to understand. I, I was a rank amateur compared to John, though. I mean, he was wild about horror movies, uh, especially, but sci-fi as well. Uh, so much so that he started his own fan magazine when he was still pretty young. Uh, wow. He was a creative dynamo. Uh, my life changed when we made friends for real as teenagers. We'd been uh, aware of each other since grade school. We were both in a K through 12 school right there on the campus of Western Kentucky University. Where his father was a professor. Yes. And uh, we were both uh, in the orchestra. I was on trombone. He was on violin. Wow. And we took private lessons, violin for him, piano for me. So that by the time we really, uh, it was an orchestra trip when our friendship was sealed. He was in the back. He brought his guitar. He was playing and all these girls were gathered around him. And it was like, wait a minute, this guy's onto something, you know. So this had to be the birth of the Coupe de Villes. Well, it was the birth of us singing together and then starting to sing John's songs and then forming a rock and roll garage cover band that we actually made a lot of money for a couple of years in <laughs> high school and early college. And then the Coupe de Villes gelled once John was uh, in USC cinema, because he was, uh, he, he had that rare talent to uh, come up with a song or a theme or a, even an entire uh, score for student films, whereas most of us were forced to use like the latest Cat Stevens number behind our, <laughs> you know, whatever was av available. Uh, but John was supplying people with original music and I started helping him. And that's when Nick appeared, Nick Castle. Nick Castle. Yeah. The, the two of you were both the, uh, the shape. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Uh, you could say Nick was the long range and uh, smooth walking shape. And I was the guy who broke stuff. <laughs> the heavy handed. One. Well, we can't, we can't go through your television work without coming to it, especially for this oh, yeah. show. It and the success of the original It on ABC led to The Stand, which I did. And so that never would have happened had it not been for your first trip with Pennywise. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It, uh, the, I have such fond memories of that show uh, and I believe its great secret weapon was the casting yeah. uh, between these heavyweight TV stars uh, as the adults and these wonderful children who, I think the secret of that casting was that we got right. 
was I truly believed those kids growing up to be those adults. And that's, you know, uh, you know very well, it's not an easy thing to pull off is that, that, that sense of, okay, here's, uh, uh, here's this kid. And then next scene, you're looking at the adult and going, yeah, I see that. It, they, they look like they could have grown up to be that person. Uh, and I also think that holds true generally for Stephen King. Everybody talks about horror and the, the scary situations he creates, but I don't think he would have endured as long as he has without other elements at work. And the key element to my mind is he has tapped into childhood in a way that uh, resonates with anyone who reads his stuff. Uh, it's just the, the rites of passage and the secrets and the bonding that take place. Uh, and and it, it comes up again and again and again. I, I remember being bowled over when I saw Stand By Me. Oh, one of the best movies ever. Ever. Uh, such a good job uh, Rob Reiner did, uh, and all of them did on that show. But that again, these are the rites of passage of childhood. And Stephen King just had his fingers all over the pulse of that. And I think that's what made our original it really tick. That we got, well, that, we got that part right. It, that's for sure. So, it, I mean, it has lasted so long. There are still people who prefer it to the, to the movies that have come yeah, out. Yeah, people come up and tell me that. I, I really have to take a look at the new one. I, I don't have anything against it. I just, it's sitting on my stack of stuff to watch. I, I didn't plunge right in to watch it, though, because there was one thing about it that struck me as a, a note, a missed note. When I see Tim Curry in the early scenes in my it, he is someone I could believe a child would approach because he's charming. Right. And his makeup is neutral. In the new it, I see a, a clown who's made up in such a way that he looks scary. He, he looks scary. I think to myself, no child in their right mind would do that, <laughs> that thing. Uh, and I think that they may have over-revved their, uh, well, who am I to say? It's a successful yeah. movie, so more power to them. But Well, it's such a bizarre experience. You know, they they remade The Stand recently, and watching that was just an otherworldly experience. It's it's really hard because you live it for so long Yeah. in your version. It's your baby. Yeah, and then yeah. suddenly it's like, Wow, this is completely different. And, yeah, yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Yeah, but I, I, I welcome. I mean, I love seeing how someone else takes on the same story and creates something totally different. Yeah, yeah, it's it amazes me. Uh, I suppose Halloween is a great example of the. Not only did the shape just never die, but the. <laughs> The franchise never <laughs> until the new one, apparently. Well, I don't believe it for a second. <laughs> I I had a conversation with Mustafa Akkad some years before he was killed. I'm sure you know that story. He yeah. was murdered in the Middle East uh, by terrorists. Uh, yeah, this is the original executive producer of the original Halloween. Yeah. Yes, and uh, I said. 
Mustafa, good God, man. Haven't you made enough money? You ever gonna, <laughs> aren't you ever gonna end this? Uh, and he said, the Michael Myers will never die. It's <laughs> just like, yeah, no matter how many times you kill him, they're gonna bring him back until they've squeezed every dollar out of out Evil of never dies. Yeah. <laughs> Evil. No. Well, look, the Friday the 13th, how many decades ago was the final chapter? <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, it's a little like, uh, who are the perennial, like share? how many farewell tours? <laughs> yeah. You know, it just keeps on going. It's never going to stop. Elton as John, long as the audience wants it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Elton, Elton John's 14th farewell tour. <laughs> yeah, something like that. So as far as the job of director goes, what is the part of it that you're the most passionate about or that you enjoy the most? Is it interacting with the actors? Is it being on set? Is it putting out fires? Is it writing rewriting is it shot listing is it editing is it sound mix there's so many parts to the slices of the pie well mick you you've done the checklist and uh <laughs> i have to say uh and and done them very well by the way because those are the biggies uh, the big categories thank you uh, for me it started out because I didn't come out of the theater, I came out of graphic design and art. Uh, it started out being a sort of calculated movement of shapes in the frame. That is mm. to say the uh, Alfred Hitchcock approach, very careful storyboarding, the psychological implications of starting wide and pushing in close and all that. Uh, all that was what I was most caught up in was shot making, but it didn't take that long to understand that uh, if you want a really top quality movie, you better get with those actors and work with them and give them a safe space and build them up to where they feel safe and where they feel confident that they can make mistakes, they can try things, uh, which of course is, is difficult on a tight schedule, but you've got to find a way to at least make everybody feel that way that, oh, we got all the time in the world. But of course, it's not true. But if the actors feel that way, they'll give you more. So I'd have to say that it has evolved, I hope, from being all about the graphics to being all about the performances and mixing and matching in between according to what scene it is. And there's another thing people don't really associate with you, but uh, and the sea will tell. The adaptation of Vincent Bugliosi's book was something particularly special, especially when it came to the performances. Tell Boy, me all about that. I really appreciate your bringing it up because people do ask me what's what's the movie you're proudest of, and I'll I'll vacillate between it and uh, and the sea will tell because they actually were back to back. As soon as I got off it, I went on to and the sea will tell. Uh, Green, Epstein, and Bacino were the producers, and boy, you couldn't ask for better support. That's part of the reason when a director has that kind of support, you can really work out. Uh, but uh, it, it, it was an ideal situation, not to mention getting to go to Tahiti and Hawaii, uh, based in Vancouver. That's a dream come true. <laughs> that'll take it. Yeah, that'll put you in a good mood. Uh, but well, thank you for that. The 
performances actually didn't come that easily. Richard Crenna was the perfect example of the perfect actor's actor. He just showed up, didn't require much in the way of all I had to do was say, Richard, as far as I can tell, you're doing exactly what I'm hoping <laughs> for. So maybe I should be giving you a bunch of direction, but I don't have anything to say. Just do your thing. Yeah. Uh, whereas uh, Rachel Ward and Hart Bachner playing the parts of uh, the bad guys, you could say, in a way, uh, they were a handful every day. Uh, oh. I don't know whether it was they felt in order to get the performances they needed, they had to be us against the world. That would fit. Uh, that's a theory I have anyway, that one reason they made themselves kind of difficult to work with was that they just needed that to get off into their performances, which I think in both cases were terrific. Yeah, they were. But they didn't come easily. You know, <laughs> they, yeah. cost, they cost us. It, it it was difficult. It was so difficult that Richard Crenna one day just took me aside. He said, I don't see how you're doing this. I want to <laughs> punch those two in the face every time I see them. And I he's a guy who is also directed. Yeah. Yeah. And I, uh, I guess I can say that because Richard's gone on to heaven and uh, actors heaven. And, uh, yeah. and Rachel and Hart both knew that I didn't feel that great about how they treated the crew. Um, mm -hmm. It's one thing, you know, to have a method that causes you to maybe, like Tim Curry, uh, Tim stayed away kind of from the other actors and from really the crew. He had a great sense of humor. And if you approached him, he was amiable, but he also stood off to one side most of the time. And since that's the only time I worked with Tim, I don't know whether that was typical or whether it was part of him being Pennywise and remaining aloof to help his mm. performance and perhaps help the others as well by being not so familiar with yeah. him. Yeah, every actor has a different approach to how they exactly. work. And exactly. that's, that's what you have to learn early on when you're doing a shoot as the director is, is okay. that not who do I shoot first? Who do I? Yeah. Is that, that not the biggest conundrum when one of your actors in scenes where they're both appearing all the time? What if one of them hates to rehearse and in fact is best on take one without rehearsal, and the other one needs about 12 takes to get warmed up? <laughs> you find that out very quickly. <laughs> Isn't that something? It really is a, a conundrum uh that uh I still don't know how you do that except to just uh, do a lot of takes and make yeah. sure you're like, as you point out, make sure you're covering the critical one, uh, their best angle and their best shot early. If they're, if they're that kind of actor or late, if they're that other kind of actor. Yeah. Some take time to ramp up. Well, and if you I'm want to do it as a one -er, uh, <laughs> yeah, good luck. Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Tommy Lee, thank you so much. This is this is our Halloween month, so everyone we're doing four shows this month, all about Halloween, and we could not do it without putting a big spotlight on Halloween three, and and it's been a total pleasure. Well, Mick, you've been so kind and uh, so insightful. Thank you for the good questions. 
uh, it's oh. uh, really a pleasure to uh, talk with you. Well, it takes two, <laughs> yeah, at least. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.